Today's scripture, um, today's sermon text is Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Haggaim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up for, to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam, Abinom from Kadesh Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Ephtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Canaanite had separated from the Canaanites, the descendants of Habob, the father-in-law of Moses and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hegayim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of his sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hegeim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Canaanite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is there anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground, while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, and the tent peg in his temple." So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let me open us with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, as we come to your word, may it speak afresh to us. May you speak into our inner lives, into our thoughts and our loves and our desires, our wills. May you conform us to Christ. We pray this in his holy and majestic and perfect name. Amen. Well, every parent has a bedtime routine for their kids. Uh, and it probably varies pretty widely depending on the person. My bedtime routine is very efficient because I'm not a nighttime person, so by the time my kids are going to bed, I will not be long after them. And so I'm like, let's get this done. Pray a quick prayer, sing a quick song. And so my kids are always asking for Marco to put them down because they know they can drag that out. But sometimes, uh, if I'm not too tired, they can convince me to tell them a bedtime story. And it always involves me making up a story and the way this has gone is, is all my kids are superheroes, and they get to pick their superpower, and I make up a story with them, and they're forever fighting the evil Dr. Dark, who's the, the supervillain, and, uh, and trying to defeat him in whatever way. And the thing is, what I found is that all my kids, they want to be the hero of the story. But if I make one of my kids the hero who conquers Dr. Dark in that event, then the other two kids are upset. And then I have to tell three different stories you know, with each of them the heroes. So what I do is I, I end up telling these incredibly convoluted plot lines where all of them are, 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 you know, completely necessary for vanquishing Dr. Dark in one story, and that way they can all be the hero. But it's interesting. There's something about humans that we want to be the hero. Uh, we want to be the one who is getting all the accolades, all the credit, all the glory, and kids are upfront about it. Daddy, can I be the hero tonight? Adults still do that too. We're just better at hiding it. But there's still something within our heart that we want the glory to go to us. So for instance, I've heard stories of well-known medical doctors who will do research with medical residents, the, the doctors who are training under them. Uh, and then when they go to publish the paper, they actually remove the names of the residents. So that what was published just gave credit to them. And of course, they're the attending well-known doctor. The resident's not going to be able to say anything about it. So adults too, like we want the glory to go to us. And what is this? Well, I think it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What was the problem? What was the central problem in that temptation? It was, well, if you do this, you will be like God. We tend to want to be the hero because there's something broken in the human heart that wants to be like God, the one who receives all the glory. But of, of course, the worst thing for a creature would be, to treat it, would, would be for that creature to be treated like the creator. The promise of the serpent, you will be like God, is false. We'll never be like him. And there's really nothing worse for a person to actually be treated as if they were God. But anyways, keeping this, this basic sinful human tendency in mind of wanting to receive all the glory, of wanting to be the hero, what's so unique and interesting about our story this morning is that there isn't just one hero. It's like my kid's bedtime story all over again. Who, who defeats uh, the Canaanites in this story? Well, it's not clear. In reality, there are actually three individuals who all play important roles in the deliverance from Jabin, the Canaanite king. You have Deborah, the prophetess. She plays a role. You have uh, Barak, the military leader. He plays a role. And then you have this Jael person. He's just a wife, and she plays a role as well. 
And in, in the end, each of them is insufficient in their own to actually deliver Israel. They all play a part. And what this is showing us is that, is that it's not Deborah the deliverer. It's not Barak the deliverer. It's not Jael the deliverer. It's God is the one who's orchestrating the deliverance. God alone saves. And we see that through the three different heroes who play a partial role in this deliverance in our story this morning. And so our outline is actually going to follow these three different partial deliverers. So our first point is going to be Deborah the prophetess. Third, second point is going to be Barak the warrior. And then third point is Jael the wife. Again, Deborah the prophetess, Barak the warrior, Jael the wife. Now before we jump in, um, if you don't have a Bible open, go ahead and open it because it's helpful to see this. But chapter four is the story and then you see in chapter five, we have a song. It says the song of Deborah and Barak. And our story is unique in a lot of ways, but one of the ways it's unique is that it's the only story that has a song of worship and praise that follows the story. And what this song is doing is it's, it's giving us some interpretation on how to read the story. The story is told somewhat straightforwardly and, 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 and differently than other judges' stories. God is not as active, as clearly active in the story and so we get this song, which gives us a theological interpretation for what is God doing. And the song actually also gives important details to so even understand how the story goes. And so the way we're going to be doing this this morning is we're going to be uh, walking through the story and then pulling in bits from the song when it interprets what's happening in the story uh, and lets us know what's going on and what's important to know about God and his work. The first point, again, Deborah the prophetess. Let me read for us again verses 1 to 7. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them in the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Haresheth Hagoim. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and she summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I'll give him into your hand. So once again, we pick up, and Israel is doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the common refrain throughout Judges, and that's shorthand for they're worshiping the Canaanite gods. They've rejected Yahweh, or at the very least, they've now added Baal and Asherah as kind of additional deities to hedge, hedge their bets. And so God sells them into the hand of another oppressor, and this one is named Jabin, uh, Canaanite king, he reigns in northern Israel. And he seems to be probably the worst oppressor that Israel has faced so far. Uh, with the first one, Cushan Rishathaim and Eglon, what it says is that Israel served them. And that seems to suggest they were giving them tribute. That was the extent of, of, of the subjugation. Now, tribute can be pretty burdensome in itself. If the U.S. government all of a sudden decided to level a flat 50% income tax, uh, we would feel that, even if that's the only oppression we felt. But the way it describes um, Jabin is that he had this general Sisera who oppressed the people of Israel cruelly. It was violent oppression. Uh, it was brutal oppression. 
This is another level of hardship that Israel's not seen yet. And in fact, when we get to chapter five, we find that this involved rape and pillage. And this goes on for 20 years. This is a dark time for Israel. And we see some more descriptions of what this was like again in the song in chapter five, in verse six. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. It was so dangerous in Israel, you didn't, you didn't go on the main roads, you went on the byways. It's kind of like when cities begin to decline, there are neighborhoods that you just don't go through anymore. Not unless you want to be mugged. Well, that's Israel. The main highways are too violent. You, you take byways, you, you go under cover of darkness. Or verse seven, the villagers ceased in Israel. In other words, unless you were in a town that had walls, protective walls around it, it just wasn't safe. So the villages were abandoned and, and Israel withdrew into the towns and cities that had walls. But then lastly, what we find out is the external chaos, the external darkness that's going on in Israel is just reflective of the internal spiritual chaos. Verse eight, when new gods were chosen. In Israel, the people of God had chosen new gods. So militarily, economically, spiritually, Israel's in a very dark place right now. But then we meet Deborah. And in the middle of very dark time, we see not everything is dark. And we get a ray of hope with this woman. She's called a prophetess. What does that mean? That means she was the mouthpiece of God. She was someone who brought messages from God to the people of Israel. What that means is that even in this dark time, even though there's mass apostasy, uh, mass violence, God still spoke. And if people wanted to hear a word from the Lord, they knew where to go. Further, she was a judge. It seems like her main vocation was a prophetess, but then she kind of was a judge as needed. And what's interesting is, is she was different, not only that she's the only female judge in all the book of Judges, and we'll talk about that, but she was also unique in this, in that all the other judges led because of their military might, right? Othniel, he was an ideal judge, but it was because he was a, a warrior. Ehud was followed because he assassinated Egon. But Deborah, people follow her because of her wisdom and her character. Because they could go to Deborah and hear a word from the Lord and receive trustworthy advice and wisdom and counsel. And it's significant that, that Deborah would meet between the cities of Ramah and Bethel. Again, it's another picture of what's going on in Israel. Bethel was where the ark was held during the time of the judges. So that would have been the locus of the priestly ministry. Priests ministered before the tabernacle. She didn't meet in Bethel. She also didn't meet in Ramah. Ramah, we know by the time of David, had a school for prophets. So that seemed to be the two cities of institutional Judaism. Ramah for the prophets, Bethel for the priests, it doesn't say what they're doing at this time, but we can assume because new gods have been chosen and Israel has turned away from the Lord that at the very least, the priesthood has been compromised. The institutions of Judaism have failed. Dark time, but then there's Deborah. And she's ministering outside these institutions of Judaism. And it's there that people go if they want to hear from Yahweh. What we see in this is even in the darkest of times, God brings a light even in this time when there was violence and persecution and, again, mass apostasy, there was a place where God's voice could be heard. It may seem, in times, like we can't see what God is doing or God doesn't seem to be active or at work. But God is always working, always. 
He always provides a place or a way for his voice to be heard if we are willing to seek it out. And what was important for Deborah and what's important for us is that she was faithful with the life and the circumstances she'd been given. I don't think Deborah wanted to live in the days of Deborah. Um, I don't think anyone wants to live in the days when it seems like things are going badly. And Deborah could have been depressed and frustrated and angry at Israel, at God not working. She could have been discouraged, but instead, what did she do? She was faithful with the circumstances she had. She served God with, the, with what she had. And in the end, it's through her that comes the great news in verse six and seven that God is going to deliver Israel. But what did Deborah do? She was faithful with the life and circumstances that God had given her. So that's Deborah the prophetess. Now I want to talk a little bit about Deborah and women in general because, I mean, this is such an interesting passage. And it's interesting in so many ways. One is because Deborah's the only woman judge in all the book of Judges. She's also one of the only religious and civic leaders in the whole Old Testament. Uh, and so it's, it's, there's just all this thought-provoking stuff in here, and um, I'm going I'm to do my best just to give some thoughts, and you'll probably leave more confused afterwards, because I, I just don't think, I think Deborah defies easy categorization and easy explanation. And I'll say this, it's a story, which means there's a lot in here that's suggestive, but not a whole lot that's revelatory, if that makes sense. So we never build our paradigm of gender and gender roles based on a story, based on what's suggestive, but it is very suggestive. So first, Deborah is a woman. She's also a wife, and she's a prophetess, and at times an ad hoc judge. In other words, Deborah does not seem to fit the traditional housewife picture that would have been common of the day. All of her ministry in our text takes place outside the home. And she was a wife. That's interesting. Now, some people, again, there's different ways to interpret this, and there's a lot of disagreement how to interpret this. Uh, one way to interpret the story of Deborah is that it fits into this theme of the unexpected deliverer, right? So Ehud, he was a man with a disability. At the very least, he was left-handed. Don't expect him to be the deliverer. It's not expected to be normal or normative. It's exceptional. So similarly, Deborah, she's a leader in a patriarchal society. It's, it's unusual. It's, un it's exceptional. Well, then sometimes people say, well, the reason Deborah was a leader is because men wouldn't step up and lead, and certainly the, the lack of leadership is a growing theme throughout Judges. I think you can interpret it that way. I think that's a possible interpretation. I also think there are problems with that interpretation, and it's primarily this, and that it doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say that Deborah uh, was leading because she was exceptional or that she was leading because there were no men available to lead. It doesn't say that. And one important interpretive tool we take to scriptures is we look at what the Bible says explicitly, and then we, do, then we interpret the parts that are less clear by what is clearly stated. And what is clearly stated in this story? Deborah was a prophetess, and she was a judge. And what's said over and over again throughout the time of judges is who raises the judges up? It's not because of their natural inclinations or just socioeconomic explanations. It's God. God would raise up the judges. And so it's explicitly told us is God has raised up a prophetess and a judge named Deborah, who is a woman. And not only that, it's portrayed quite positively. Uh, at the end of this, it's not, you know, in, in chapter 5, there's actually praise given 
Let me read it for verse, verse one here. Then saying Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinom on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Praise God that the leaders led. Okay, well, who are the leaders in the story? Verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives. Deborah and Barak were the leaders. Praise God that the leaders led. It's unapologetically positive. That's what's explicitly said. And it's interesting, Deborah is also probably the most, arguably, the most positive figure in all of Judges. Again, we have Othniel, he was the ideal judge, but he led because of his military power, and we don't actually hear much about Othniel's relationship with Yahweh. And here we have Deborah, and she leads by her wisdom and character, and she's portrayed as a woman who was devoted to Yahweh, who knew the Lord and loved the Lord and followed the Lord. In many ways, she's probably, I mean, she's flawless. Most judges have flaws. Deborah has no flaws. And not only that, she's portrayed as one who loves the Lord in a way that really no other judge is portrayed. And so I think with Deborah, again, this is what's suggestive, but not necessarily revelatory. We have a pretty unapologetically positive example of a woman who is a civic and a religious leader in the Old Testament. What we do with that it's suggestive. At the same time, it's suggestive in other ways, and that Deborah was a woman, and that meant something. Uh, she's not a priest, uh, nor does she try to be a priest. It's interesting. Um, at a time when the priesthood had failed, you would think this would be a time we need someone like Deborah, who loves the Lord, to step up. But Deborah never does. Now, again, this is suggestive. I think it's, it's significant Deborah is not the only prophetess in the Bible. There's, in fact, quite a few. Uh, Miriam, sister of Moses, was a prophetess. Huldah in 2 Kings, uh, Nadiah and Nehemiah. Anna, whom Jesus was brought to as an infant, was a prophetess. There's never a female priest, though. And the priests and prophets had different ministries. Priests ministered in the temple. They, were, they, they handled the sacrifices before the tabernacle, Prophets typically ministered outside the temple. Again, I don't know how much to make of this, but it's suggestive because the closest correlate to the temple in the New Testament is the church. So Deborah, she's this strong leader, but yet she's not a priest. That's suggestive. And secondly, again, because sometimes people, sometimes we read this and it's like, this is like a, a magnet or a, 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 what's the word where you're like, you know, this is your, your not a magna, I'm saying magna carta, but that's not it. Do you know what I'm saying? Magnum opus, is that it? Not, that's not the word I'm looking for. Anyways, it's, it's not like this is like some great like, you know, testament to modern day feminism because Deborah, she breaks some categories and she breaks other categories. Deborah doesn't lead the troops in the battle. She gets Barak to do that. Why does she do that? Well, some people might say, well, she knew as a woman that in a patriarchal society, men aren't going to follow a woman. That's possible. Again, it doesn't say that, though, and I want to stick with what's clearly said. Deborah was a strong, compelling female leader, yet she was not a warrior. What was she? Well, she tells us in chapter 5, verse 7, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Not a warrior. This is not Wonder Woman. Like Wonder Woman demonstrates her strength by, doing, by showing that she can do whatever men can do. Deborah demonstrates her strength by doing what no man could ever do, which is be a mother. 
And so what I find so suggestive and so honestly beautiful and compelling about Deborah is we have a strong, compelling female leader who is strong in a distinctively feminine way. Again, so suggestive, not 100% sure what to do with it, but I think in this, to me, there seems to be a, a way forward we can chart between the polarized extremes right now of complementarianism and egalitarianism. And when I figure it out, I'll, I'll let you all know. <laughs> but that's our first point, Deborah the prophetess, the first partial leader, partial deliverer that God uses, a light shining in a dark place, evidence that the darkness, no matter how dark it gets, God's at work, and there's a place we can hear his voice. But the second point, Barak the warrior. Let me read verses 8 to 16 for us. Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, and the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So we're introduced to the second partial deliverer in the story. The second partial hero is Barak. And he's a man who's noted by his faltering steps his lack of self-confidence. Uh, it's interesting, Barak's name literally means lightning, which is a great name. That bodes well when you're looking for someone to lead the armies of Israel, uh, to conquer their enemies. And yet Barak is uncertain of himself. So he makes a request to Deborah. Barak says to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now most commentators will see this as somewhat shameful. Uh, and I think at the very least, in, in a, again, in a patriarchal society, this is this would have been seen as somewhat shameful for a man to reject to do his manly duties as a general unless a woman goes with him. There would have been something at least suspect about this in the cultural milieu of the day. We have to ask, why does Barak or Barak ask for her presence? Well, again, I, I, I think he's an imperfect leader. I mean, I think he's uncertain. I think he's, frankly, terrified. And who wouldn't be? God says, hey, go get 10,000 men and take on 1,000 Iron chariots, that was like the tank of the day. How do you think 10,000 foot soldiers would do against 1,000 tanks on open country? Against 900 iron chariots, 10,000 men would be mowed down like a lawnmower mows grass. It was a suicide mission. Of course Barak's terrified. This is, you don't do this. I think it's part of it. 
But why does Barak ask for Deborah to go with him? Well, who is Deborah? She was a prophetess. What was a prophetess? It was the mouthpiece of God. When she asked Deborah to go with him, she's asking for God's presence. And I think that's why Deborah honors his request. Verse 9, I will surely go with you. If Barak had asked something shameful and appropriate, let's put it this way. When Barak makes this request, Deborah doesn't say, you patsy, get your big boy pants on and get going. She says, okay, I'll go with you, surely. But she gives a qualification. Uh, Nevertheless, the road in which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, again, I'm a little bit outside probably where most commentators would be on this, and that most of you as a rebuke. But I don't think it's a rebuke because it doesn't, because Barak at the end of the day is a positive figure. He makes it into the hall of faith. God grants his requests. And so I don't think this is just Barak losing his, his, his nerve and, and uh, I think there's something deeper going on here. And I think this is what happens. Barak wants the presence of God to go with him. And so he tells Deborah, I won't go unless you go with me. She says, okay, I'll go with you. And this will be the sign that God will deliver, that God will deliver Sisera into your hands. He's going to be killed by a woman. It's similar to Gideon. When Gideon says, God, give me a sign, and God gives him the sign, the fleece. But it's different because this sign will only happen after the fact. In other words, Barak's going to have to step out in faith, and there will be a sign that this is God doing it. But he's not, that sign's not going to happen until Barak first steps out and, 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 and takes on uh, Sisera and the army that God is calling him to. And Barak accepts the call. And I think this is why Barak is included again in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. What more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. It doesn't make sense that Barak would make that list if these are all rebukes. I think in response to God, to, to Barak's right request for God's presence, God says, yeah, I'll be with you, but you're going to have to step out in faith. It is very rare for God to give us assurance before the fact like he does to Gideon. That, that was a, an instance of God's immense, boundless, unmerited grace that he would give him these signs and certainties before Gideon would step out. Far more how God works is he calls us to step out, and it's only after the fact that we see how God was present with us throughout it all. It's only as we've walked down the road that we look back in perspective and see, oh yeah, Christ was with me this whole way. Never judge how God is working in your life in the moment. When Barak and the men were running down that mountain, it felt like suicide. And yet, as we'll see, they were running down with the power of God. Sometimes in the moment, it feels like we're running down a mountain into suicide, into something that just can't possibly work out. And faith is running down anyways knowing that in hindsight, we'll see how God is with us. So first, yes, 
uh, Deborah gives him his request and tells him and gives him a sign that God will be with him. But secondly, she tells Barak something really important. Again, in verse nine, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. And I think this is probably the central verse in the whole story. I think this gives the kind of interpretive lens through which we understand why there are three deliverers, why God delivers in the way he does. The road in which you are going will not lead to your glory. Now there's an irony in this because she says it's not gonna be your glory but God will deliver Sisera into the hand of a woman. And when you read it through the first time you assume that's Deborah because she's the only other woman in the story and I mean she's this great prophetess who has this great leadership and influence to assume it's Deborah but it's not. It's gonna be Jael an unknown. And here's the point of all this, is that the point is not that, oh, is it Barak or is it Deborah or is it Jael who receives the glory? The point is that no, none of them receive the glory. God is the one who delivers. They pay their small part, but God is the one who delivers. None of them are walking down a road that will lead to their glory. And so God delivers in a way that makes it clear that all the glory belongs to him. So let me bring this back to us. Brothers and sisters, the road in which you are going it will not lead to your glory. The road of discipleship of Jesus Christ, it doesn't lead to your glory. It's not how it works. It's not how it's designed to be. So what do you do? You just be useful in the circumstances and the vocation and the calling and the place that God has placed you. That's all that Deborah and Barak and, 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 and Jael do. They're just useful. And what could be a greater honor than being useful to the king of the universe? The road in which you're walking will not lead to your glory, and that's a good thing. Pray that you will have the honor to just be useful in whatever place God has put you. So again, the first partial delivery we've seen is, is Deborah the prophetess, such a a thought-provoking and suggestive and, and, and wonderful figure. And we see the second partial deliverer, Barak, the warrior. These are two notable individuals. They seem to clearly be the ones who will crush Sisera. But then we get to the third. And this is Jael, the wife. Let me read verses 17 and 24. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into, uh, oh, I lost my place there. Turn, uh, he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is there anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her head. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So we have Jael. Who was Jael? Well, she was a Kenite. 
The Kenites were the in-laws of Moses. Uh, they were not Israeli, they were not Hebrew. And, they can, and even though they were allowed to live in Israel, they never assimilated. They, they maintained their ethnic difference. And so Jael was a foreigner. She wasn't a child of Abraham. Secondly, who was she? I mean, we have Deborah. She's this like strong, compelling leader whom all of Israel is going to to, to, to have her give them wisdom. You have Barak, the military hero. Makes sense. Who's Jael? She's the wife. She's just an ordinary, normal wife. And yet it's Jael who kills the great Canaanite general, Sisera. Now I have to make a note here. When we're reading narrative, we have to be careful about how we understand the story because in stories, just because something happens doesn't mean that God condones everything that happens. And that makes it tricky to try to understand how to understand this. And so Jael, for instance, uh, for one, she's not a Hebrew, doesn't tell us anything about who she worships. Yahweh is not mentioned in, this, in these last verses at all. And she breaks two of the Ten Commandments. She lies, and then she murders. Not only that, she breaks every Middle Eastern expectation for hospitality. Nonetheless, I think we're supposed to see that Sisera got exactly what he deserved. Again, at the end of the song, it ends with all of a sudden imagining the mother of Sisera waiting for her son to come home, and she's wondering why it's taking him so long. And she's like, oh, he must be you know, plundering the Israelites, and it's taking so long. And this is how she describes what she's expecting her son to be doing. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, Spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. She's like, where's my son? Oh, he's probably raping and pillaging. Each man, if he's lucky, he'll get one sex slave, maybe two sex slaves. That's the expectation because that was the mode of operation for Sisera. He was a cruel, violent, evil man. And so what he receives is what he deserved as Tim Keller makes this very uh, helpful or very interesting comment, but traditionally women were the ones who set up tents and took them down. That was, just, that was the housework of the day. And so a tent peg was a domestic object. It was like, I don't know, mixing bowl or something that was like distinctly feminine. And so um, I do most of the making, mixing my house, by the way, so don't take that as like a sexist comment. But anyways... Um, <laughs> Tim Keller says this, after making the lives of many women hellish nightmares, it is two women who bring Sisera down. And there is great irony that the man who used women as objects is killed by a womanly object. So again, our text is not condoning how Joel goes about what she does. But in the mystery of God's sovereignty, he uses people's real agency and actions, and it accomplishes his will nonetheless. And that's why verse 31 says, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord. Jael, you know, we don't, we don't take away from this that, yes, we should take tent pegs and drive them into the temples of our enemies. But she is nonetheless accomplishing the will of the Lord. But here's the point. That was just a side point. Here's the point. Who takes down Sisera? Again, is it Deborah, the prophetess, as significant of the figure as she was? No. Was it Barak, the great military hero who's willing to lead 10,000 men against 1,000 chariots? You know, you can imagine, I mean, like a movie scene, running down the hills. No. 
It was Jael. And who is Jael? What's so great about her? She's a wife. She's just ordinary, nothing special about her wife. There's just, there's humor here. I, you just, you got to, Barak shows up and he's been pursuing Sisera. He's like, I'm finally going to kill my enemy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the cherry on top, so to speak. And he arrives and Jael shows him. He doesn't say anything. It's just like, well, that was anticlimactic. <laughs> Imagine Sisera, or uh, uh, Barak in his mind saying, really? She's the one who got, you, she, she's the one who killed him? God will take down his enemies. He will destroy those who harm his people. And will he use a prophet or a judge or a military general? No, he'll use a wife. He'll use a tent peg, a feminine tool that men disdained to use. You know, as, as humans, we tend to spend so much time striving after glory, trying to earn people's approval and applause and worrying about what people think about us, what we've accomplished, what we hope to accomplish, what our status is. And yet God uses not the great and inspiring, but he uses a housewife with morally questionable means to do his greatest work so that the glory will go to him alone. When the end of this world comes and all history is displayed before us, we begin to see what God has been doing through this messy and complex and convoluted lives that we live. We'll see how little our notions of self-glory and personal glory matter. We'll see how far more significant it is that Christians, whatever their lot or station, were simply useful to Jesus in the place and the circumstances that he had placed them. Has God placed you as a teacher or a nurse or a student, or a parent, or a child. You just be useful to Christ in that place. And the glory will go to him. For at the end of time, we will, we will have praise and thoughts for one person. And that'll be God. Blessed be his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you use the means and the methods you need to show us that you are worthy of all our praise, that there is no deliverer worthy of praise besides you. And you use weak and flawed people, you use unforeseen circumstances, your voice is present in the darkest of times, your mercy never ends. May our hearts be captivated with you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.